Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares, episode number 11. This episode of this podcast will highlight alcohol recovery stories via the real-life experiences of our guest and provide you a front-row seat to the recovery journey. These deep-dive talks are guaranteed to inspire and entertain you. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I have been sober since October the 10th of 2000. I am a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. Sober Shares is in no way affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous. We do not speak for AA. We speak only for ourselves and have no interest in outside issues. Sober Shares is not affiliated with any politics, organization, or institution. We hope to be of great service to the world when it comes to documenting recovery stories from the disease of alcoholism. I am glad you are here, and I hope you find what you are looking for. And now, it's time to meet our guest. I will turn it over to her, and she can introduce herself and give her sobriety date. Hey, thanks, Michael. I'm Andy, and I'm alcoholic. I've been sober since March 13, 2009. Oh, wow. Ooh, I like that accent. Is that an East Texas accent? Where's that from? Matter of fact, yes. I lived in East Texas for quite some time. Wow. I, I'm from Dallas-Fort Worth, but I lived out there for a long time. Okay, cool. Yeah, I've had some experience out in East Texas. I love hanging out out there. My grandfather uh, was born and raised in the Tyler area and had a, a ranch out in Frankston and Palestine. Mm, I know both those areas. Yeah, he had a good time out there. Can you tell us a little bit about the early years of your life and what did your family look like and where you were born? Sure. Like I said, I've come out of Dallas-Fort Worth and I was born in Arlington. And my early life looked, I think, what I would compare to probably Beaver Cleaver, the old show, <laughs> normal mom and dad, had a sister older than me, have a sister older than me. And then I had two brothers that were my father's first marriage, his sons. I was not raised with them, but met them later on. But everything was pretty normal in our home. I, I played softball as a little girl. I was a brownie. We went to church on Sunday and we went to church on Wednesdays. And wow. then uh, until about 11 years old, when my father died, uh, unfortunately, in his sleep. And um, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, it's been a long time. And uh, after that, uh, life looked a little bit different. But for the most part, I was just an average, everyday, you know, all-American kid. Wow. That must have put a, a big, um, a big, huge change and scary change into a little girl when her dad dies in her sleep as, as a young girl. It's scary. I'm sorry that happened to you. Um, as far as the church deal was concerned. Uh, you know, regular Sunday school and church and then Sunday night, there's always prayer and something else going on, you know. And uh, then Wednesday, I think, is more of, um, as, a, as a kid, um, we went into just classes of kids our age or youth group. And then, you know, it was more of a kind of a midweek check-in from as an adult looking back uh -huh. I, and going to church even now still yeah. um, in a different, you know, totally different capacity, different lane. But I you know, prayer, gathering, fellowship of their own kind, right? Yeah. In, in church. That's uh, what Wednesdays look like. A midweek check-in. That's cool. Kind of the way I look at it now as, a, as an adult. It makes sense, you know? Totally. So what were you thinking about? It was a Bible-based Christian church, pretty much? Mm -hmm. I was raised Southern Baptist, which is a little bit different than, you know, a number of other denominations, but basically, uh, yeah. Yeah. And what were you thinking about uh, the uh, the teachings that they were teaching you as far as the exact messages they were sending you. Did you agree with everything they were saying? Yeah, you know, I think it's 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 funny as we age and we have the opportunity to reflect and look back and even what we are trying to continue to unlearn from what we were raised with, you know, in our homes, much less organized religion or schools or whatever. But I didn't have any problem with it. I didn't see anything wrong with it. And I don't ever remember there being any controversy or conversations that were difficult in school or around any other social events. Yeah. Um, primarily just 
you know, learning about, you know, the carpenter, Jesus, and all the Bible stories is about what I can remember from my childhood in church, you know, my youth, and nothing that was scary, weird, or abnormal from what I understand now. Yeah, that's awesome. So many people have so many different experiences uh, going through that in their childhood. Some people's parents never take them to church. Some people take them five times a week, maybe seven times a week. And uh, everybody, everybody travels in a, a different lane. So it's super interesting for me to hear people's different experiences with uh, spirituality. So as far as your childhood was concerned, I mean, let's set aside your dad passing. That's sad. I'm sorry about that. Was it a happy childhood? Were you comfortable in your own skin most of the time? Or were you up in your head and kind of freaked out? What was your childhood like? You know, it's funny that you say that or you ask that because when I was five years old, no, I'm sorry, I wasn't yet five. I was almost five years old and we moved, my family moved, my father moved us from one side of um, Arlington to another. And I remember hiding in my closet and my mother and father at the new house were searching up and down the streets. And my sister, everybody was crying and in fear and I was hiding knowing that they were looking for me. And yeah. then when they all came back in frazzled and were ready to call the police, wow. I walked out. And so it was almost like I, my behavior, the behavior and the, and the thought processes that I even have today yeah. <laughs> were at five years old. But I, I had an okay childhood to answer your question. And, and there wasn't really anything off the rails that I, under, that I thought or felt different until my father died. And that's when the cat, I think that was the catalyst. And through time and therapy and recovery, I've understood a lot more um, as layers have come off. But back then, I didn't think anything of it. But I remember being 12 and 13. And in those early pivotal years of young teenage life, um, I was different. And I immediately knew I was different. I think from the time I, cause he died when I was in fifth grade at the end of the year. Wow. So then there was sixth grade. Okay. I had those childhood friends mm-hmm. and then now we go into junior high, pivotal seventh, eighth and ninth That's hard grade. for a girl, no matter what. Mm-hmm. So I was running around with the, the wrong crowd. My mother was working very hard. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot, there was no PTA. There was no more brownies. There was no more of the extracurricular, mm-hmm. a very uh, sterile, if you will, sort of lifestyle because mm-hmm. she was making up for you know, the lost parent. And she didn't have the skill set. I was going to ask about her skill set. Did you guys circle back around and have family meetings and talk all the time? Or did you just not really talk about it that much? And she was just going a hundred miles an hour trying to make the bills. And she, my mom, you know, my mom is, and was um, a very strong leader and in a completely different swim lane than me, but she, um, she took pictures down off the walls. (sighs) Uh, rather soon and I remember having resentment for a long time about that because it it kind of put him away and uh-huh. you know out of sight out of mind right right she my mother came from a large family a mm. lot of siblings they were raised very poor it didn't mean they were lack for love or nurturing I don't know what that looks like I didn't know my grandparents very well mm-hmm. they've both gone but they came out of deep east Texas and so what I do know is that we didn't have therapy. We didn't do church benevolence counseling. We didn't do that stuff. It was, that was Monday when he died. The The funeral was on Wednesday. Okay, the rest of the week we had off, and next Monday we went back to school. Oh, my God. You know, I mean, it was just stay on the conveyor belt, and let's keep going. Did they know what it was? Was it a heart attack? Or? Yes, he died. Yeah. Um, yes, and I have, it subsequently have, um, you know, part of my story is, um, yeah. it, much difficulty with my heart. My brother also had a heart attack at 28. He's, uh-huh. he's deceased now, but it's a history of, you know, stuff in the family. But uh-huh. um, yes, he died in his sleep. They just did an autopsy. I mean, it was just understood. Yeah. So. 
Did your mom ever date or get remarried again? She did, which is another totally different part of my story. My mom married him, someone that she knew from church and had known for many, many years, somebody that, you know, she thought was a safe, you know, obviously a great partner. And mm-hmm. he ended up not being um, someone she'd be married to very long. And unfortunately, he had predator-like behaviors as well uh-huh. and uh, was not necessarily a victim to that, but I was... Um, exposed to some of his behaviors mm-hmm. and and then she divorced him after just a couple of years and he's now passed on as well okay when did you uh, first become aware of alcohol and what were your initial thoughts about it like when was it first come into your psyche when it first came into my psyche is because it was in the refrigerator at my home there was this weird ugly bottle in the refrigerator and I asked my mother as a child what is that what is this bottle? Mm-hmm. It, it had this yellowy looking liquid in it. And she said, that's your daddy's. And so I asked my daddy, you know, what is that bottle? And he said, that's something for you not to worry about. And it's for grownups. And as i after he passed and as I aged, my mother told me that my father quit drinking in 1973 and he kept that bottle of tequila in the refrigerator and would smell it every time he wanted to drink. And that's my first understanding of what tequila, liquor, anything. I was very young when she told me that. Obviously, he passed it. And it it stayed in the refrigerator for probably 10 or 15 years after. I mean, it stayed there a long time. And then after I got sober, she gave me that bottle. Uh It was empty, obviously. Uh And she gave me that bottle. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea that my father was that much of a drinker. My sister was born... um, you know, in the, in the early seventies and, um, or in 1970, she was born and my father drank until she was about three. And I didn't know that my father had a problem with alcohol. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. And yeah. yeah, as, as I aged, you know, learned more, but yeah, that was my, and then my brother, um, I spent some time with him as a young teenager between 12 and 13. And that subsequently was the first summer after I had, you know, experienced, um, sexual abuse from someone I knew. And so having, the summer to stay with my big brother and his family. They're older than me, my brothers. Yeah. Um, he took me to the liquor store and with him and bought me a little six-pack of tiny Budweiser's. Uh-huh. I don't know if they even still make those anymore, but yeah. he was like, here you go, sis. These are just about your size. And as soon as I cracked one of those little Budweiser's and drank it, my uh-huh. entire world changed. Tell me about that. I was that. turned on to something. Tell me about that. So, you know, maybe I was between 13, 14 because... I know I, what you're talking about. Those are cute-ass little Budweiser's. Don't make them anymore like, if they do i don't know they're super cute they're, and i drink like you know dr pepper a lot and i buy those dr pepper minis yeah, 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 and they're tall too. and skinny but yeah. these are little short fat guys you mm-hmm. know and I'm, oh you talk about the little short fatties the little short it's one. like a 12 ounce beer cut in half yeah it's, yeah and he, <laughs> he handed me that and he's he said here you go sis and we had to go to the liquor store in, in another county because where he lived was a dry county not too far yeah, out, and out of Wow. and so you know how east texas is like that but down he lives out the fort worth and so we went to the liquor store and he was like here you go and i thought to myself not too long ago that if he'd have known then what he ended up knowing later he'd have just bought me a 40 ounce and called it a day you know yeah but he gave me those little budweiser's and i drank one and ended up never really liking Budweiser, by the way, but mm. not that it mattered. But they're he, one of our sponsors, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah right. they would be. Yeah, they're the worst. He, um, you know, he said, here you go. And, and he gave me one of his cigarettes. I mean, come on, top it off, right? She's oh, 14. No. Let, let her buck, right? <laughs> so I, um, 
I remember riding back from the beer store, just <laughs> drinking that like I was on top of it, you know, and, and here again, I told you, you know, it was the summer after, so my father has, is gone between, you know, fifth and sixth grade and in between sixth and seventh grade, I have this young boy that I had been raised with as a brother, like across, you know, the way or down the road from me and, mm-hmm. you know, things just were not you know, I mean, anyway, at the end of the day, I felt free. I drank that Budweiser and I was like, I'm finally the grown up that I've felt like, you know, in the last couple of years. And, um, I don't know, it just kind of changed something. And I felt like no matter what was going to happen now, it was going to be okay. I felt the same way. My first drink was a warm Corona. I drink a Coronita, which is a small miniature Corona. Uh, in my friend's garage and it was warm and it was gross but about 15 minutes later I started to feel it and I was 13 and I um oh my god it changed my life it changed my life it really made me feel uh magical man like relaxed and happy and like I was going to be okay and I didn't have to be so stressed out all the time and it's just it, it did a lot for me well for me it was like I could take that deep diaphragm breath. You know, sometimes you can't get it when there's pollen or you've been running or you're like, man, I need to, you know, probably do a few more stairs. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm just like, I can't get that deep breath. I remember it's just that euphoria between my ear, like my my cheek, my ear, that warm feeling, you know, like yeah. it's all good. It's all fine. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. What uh, Did that cigarette make you sick? I mean, probably. I think yeah. back, you know, over the years, not proud of it, but I love to smoke. I smoked 20 years. You um, did. And I had started when I was thir- 13. So Because your brother. Well, yeah. <laughs> then I was picking up viceroys out of a neighbor's, you know, yard after he was throwing them out. And so. Uh-huh pretty gross you know and then i ended up dipping snuff not i was about that. to ask if you i love dipping because i had a bunch of horses too at one point in time you know yeah. and, and i lived in east texas and and i wouldn't and i also was a firefighter in my old life you uh-huh. know and, and a paramedic and i did that and so when i was fighting fire i didn't smoke on scene so uh-huh. i just put a dip of snuff in you know yeah so yeah, that's not real attractive, and I don't want the audience to think there's some big burly <laughs> dude sitting here. But you know, hey, it, we find it. You know, or find a way to get to the. So you're off the smokes. Uh, you know, I ish. It t- yep. It took me five years sober mm-hmm. um, to kick it, and what what made me throw it up? You know, it, w- it was crazy. I read a book, and um, Steve Harvey wrote it. And he said, it's, it was a book, Act Like a Lady and Think Like a Man. Okay. And it was a good little book. I read it in one day. And the very end of it, he, he allowed, I guess, some people to ask questions. And he answered them. And he said something along the lines, a woman asked about smoking. And he said he, he found it a sign of weakness. And there was just something, I'm telling you, Michael, I mean, it takes what it takes, because I had tried everything, mm-hmm. and I could not stop smoking. And that hit me between the eyes, like, let me tell you something, mm-hmm. I'm anything but weak, yeah. you know, I mean, just from where I've been, and where, and I never smoked again, but I chewed Nicorette, two yeah. pieces at a time, go big or go home, I mean, I'm, okay. I'm an alcoholic, right, if one's good, two, four, it's probably better. Right. And so I gave that up after my third heart procedure last year. Okay. After seven years of chewing gum. Wow. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about your heart stuff before we get too much further along? What's going on with your heart? Yeah. Well, so the first time I um, started feeling some uneasiness was probably about 2015. And I didn't understand why I was having this irregularity, beating, um, fluttering, mm-hmm. and the arrhythmia, basically. And, um, and so I... Uh, went to the cardiologist and he said you know you've got some problems with your electricity and at the end of the day they ended up going 
down here through my leg and into my heart when I have to stay I had to stay awake which is very awkward to be strapped down at the wrists and at the ankles and you know to be lying there and hearing all the things that go on in the OR and he's shoving his instruments through my the trunk of my body and up through my chest you know it was crazy and so the heart doesn't have any nerves the heart itself doesn't feel which is interesting that's why heart attacks and pain and you know, goes different places, but okay. at the end of the, and there are muscles there too, but at, at the end of the day, he basically kind of cauterized the wires that were tripping. Okay. So I could feel the fire burning until it got to the heart. It was in, incredible. And he fixed my heart. And so for four years, probably I didn't have any other symptoms. Uh-huh. And then the valves are fine. I think three out of four are firing on, you know, well, and the other one, you know, we're doing okay. Mm-hmm. And everything's no blockage, nothing. And then the arrhythmia comes back and so we do the procedure again and then the arrhythmia comes back in a different capacity so we do the procedure again i'm super hypersensitive about my heart given my father and my brother's history right i've quit smoking i've quit drinking yeah you know and i've quit the nicorette because mm-hmm. i asked him the cardiologist you know should i give up the gum about five years ago and he said whatever you do don't smoke you mm-hmm. can chew the gum just don't smoke last year in june he said it's time for you to give up the gum. Yeah. And I, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Three surgeries later and I still didn't want to give it up. Like, why do we do this? <laughs> why do we think, like, what is it going to take? And so finally I just got on my knees and I gave it to God. Right. And just said, yeah, I'm just, and so I, I quit and it was, and I felt so much better ever since. But Wow. Yeah. So it still gives me some trouble. Like right now, sitting here with you, there's a little flutter. Over the last three or four days, there's been a lot of flutter. And I actually have an appointment next week and he'll just, mm-hmm. we'll just see what happens. And I just um, continue to pray and yeah. and I know that it'll be okay. Yeah. We'll get a game plan. Yeah. Um, how did you how did you secure alcohol as a minor? I know your brother hooked you up at first, but once you got going, well, tell me a little bit more about getting traction with. I know you liked alcohol the first time. Tell me a little bit more about the process of getting traction into maybe wanting to drink more than just that first time. So that's interesting because I didn't have access to my brother very often. It was only for that summer. And then, you know, when he needed someone to sit for his kids. So I kept his two kids while he and his wife worked. And then summer was over, they go back to school. I came home because I had to go to school. So that sort of ended my alter ego life, right? My, mm-hmm. my private life, um, getting yeah. my hands on alcohol. So my mother had eventually remarried a couple of three years after, you know, my father had passed, um, as previously mentioned. And he would buy, I convinced this man to mm-hmm. buy me Coors Light mm-hmm. So that I could wash my hair with it. Because <laughs> there was this thing about if you could. What? Yeah, you could get all. That's of, the funniest thing I've heard of this podcast so far. I used to. That, I can't. <laughs> and I didn't remember it until just now. Because this guy, you know, bless you his soul. He's a gangster, man. He's on the other side, whatever. But I remember saying to him, him, will you please stop and buy me? And I said, I need two. Yeah. I need two of they, they're tall boys. I mean, <laughs> my brother gave me the language. I didn't know what they were. I'm 14, 15. So I said, I need two tall boys and I need to wash my hair. And my mom would say, I don't understand this. And, and we, this is way before we were all on the internet, right? Mm-hmm. So this is, somebody <laughs> told me that if you'll wash it, it'll strip your hair okay. of all the whatever. And so the dude buys me curse lights and I am in the bathroom, uh-huh. you know, 
air quotes that you can't see on on you know on yeah. the radio but i'm washing my hair and that's a like not much of it's getting in my hair really you know? a little bit but not a little much. bit because i needed to make sure in case somebody smelled my hair so <laughs> that's how i got my hands on it but it couldn't happen very often or your hair would dry out really but i didn't really think about it much more to be very very candid <laughs> after 13 14 it was until next summer with my brother um I mixed in a little smoking, left-handed smoking. What uh, does that mean? Weed? Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, God, I don't know what we're doing. What are we doing? Yeah, I was smoking a little pot. Um, mm-hmm. Wasn't really interested in that, and that did not really blow my hair back. I didn't have any interest in that. You like weed, okay. Nope. Got on the air conditioners, though, super smart, and mm-hmm. started huffing that free on, which is <laughs> super stupid. Like, who does that, right? And that's, not me. that's what we did. Wah, 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 wah. That's what you heard. And so, anyway, at the end of the day, yeah. It was until I was about 16, 17, running around with a girlfriend of mine that uh-huh. we picked it back up. And yeah. I picked it back up hard. And I never put it down after 17 years old. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure you could get it plenty easy by the time you were 17. Uh, all this cigarette talk is making me think of a, a funny story. Um, I've mentioned my son on here. I'll probably mention him every podcast because I love him so much. But I do have an 11-year-old son. And he uh, came up to me when he was about six years old. We were somewhere. We were out in public, and he comes up to me. He's like, he goes, ooh, daddy. I go, what? He goes, ooh, daddy, look at that girl. She's being bad over there. And I looked over there, and I didn't see what he was talking about. He goes, look at that girl, daddy. She's doing smoke I go, what? He goes, look at that girl. She's doing smokerettes. Smokerettes. I was like, what's a smokerette? My wife's like, I think he's talking about cigarettes. That girl's smoking over there. But my little kid, I think he invented that word, smokerettes. Smokerettes. Yeah. Sounds like something a cigar girl would, you know, with her box would sell. Yeah. It made me laugh. And so every time I see somebody smoking, I'm like, ooh, they're being bad. Look at them smokerettes. That's so funny. All right. So uh, 17, you're able to, uh, you said you never put it back down after that. You're able to get it going on a regular basis. But, um, how did alcohol help you when you first started out? Or or you can answer that question, or you can say how it hurt you when you first started out. Well, I'll tell you that I say I picked it up at 17. I mean, probably early 17. I was running around with a girlfriend of mine. She looked older at the time. I mean, I had big hair. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's I had big hair and a lot of makeup. We were going out to the club, so on the north side of Fort Worth. And I would try to put makeup on and look older, but she managed to look older. So she would go in, and we'd schmooze the... You know, the guy that ran the gas station, the mom and pop gas stations, we saw a lot more of back then. Mm-hmm. And um, I got my first DWI when I was 17. Oh, my God. So there you ha- there you ha- I'm in high school. And it's not. What happened? It, you just got busted. <laughs> oh, I was loaded. I was on the north side of Fort Worth and I was driving my, you know, my oh, T-top God. Camaro. And I was just. Nice car. Yo, know, I thought, I, I thought, you know, I'm on top of the world. And we pulled into the Whataburger that's still open over there. Uh-huh. And I see it every once in a while if I'm in that part of town and just kind of roll my eyes. And I remember being in the ladies' room and thinking, whoa, I feel dizzy. Before. Whoa. And then I'm like, we better sit back for a minute. And instead, we just got my car and took off. And that, I mean, almost home, two and a half miles from home. Uh-huh. And, you know, he lit me up, pulled me over, and, and he took her home. I mean, back when they would do that, you yeah, know. Yeah, they don't do that anymore. They, whatever. Mm-mm. It's much much more strict now. They waited till I, gra- till I graduated high school and turned eight, you know, I turned 18, and then they convicted me. So they ran it out a year. To and make sure that you were an adult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. Is that the only one you got? No, sir. I was arrested five times for DWI, oh, and I uh, was arrested by the state of Texas a number of times. Um you know, 40 WI and then it just didn't ever come to fruition or I managed to get off or 
I was convicted twice of the same count uh, mm-hmm. at different intervals. Mm-hmm. And so I'm blessed beyond measure. I'm not a felon because I should have been. You must have come close to going to prison because they started making some kind of crazy rules. that if you got more than three or four, you go to prison. Oh, in 2005, I remember very clearly in 2005, because it was September. Um, if you there was no longer the 10 year rule. I don't know what that was. That means in Texas, if you got one in 1985 and then you got one in 1996 Mm -hmm. and it had been 10 years, then 96 would be your first. Okay. So there was a 10-year rule. So now people, unfortunately, who had gotten DWIs in 1968, who Mm -hmm. got another one in 1990, now they were on number two. Okay. So at the end of the very long day, I had been arrested for one and convicted in high school, and then I got arrested for a second. Mm -hmm. And then I got convicted. And uh, then I got arrested again for a second. Okay. And then I got arrested again for a second. They were losing them. Mm-hmm. The state of Texas was, so instead of it being a third or a fourth, mm-hmm. it just kept being a second. And yeah. I'm like, why are they losing me in the system? But I didn't ask questions. I didn't know what they were doing. And so I think that was the time in, in the 2000s when we transitioned from paper to electronic, to <laughs> yeah, be honest. And the state, of Texas, the state of Texas lost them. I only have one yeah, on yeah. my record from 95. Okay. Did you, uh, I want to ask you this question. Did you ever have blackouts? Were you a blackout drinker at all? For the last five years of my recovery. What's I'm that sorry, like? my, my, not my recovery. You're drinking. My drinking. I never had those. What, 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 was that scary? Um, what I'll tell you is, for, though I didn't draw a sober breath the last five years of my drinking. I did not draw a sober breath. I didn't, you don't know that you're going into the blackout. You just know when you come out, and it is scary because you don't know where you've been and what you've said, and or you wake up and not know how you got there. And mm-hmm. so the scary part isn't obviously during because you're not cognizant mm-hmm. of it, mm-hmm. and it is almost it is an invisible line. Mm-hmm. It is almost as if when you sit down to have a drink. For me, when I sat down to have a drink, I drank so much so fast. Right. That's what my mo was. Get it and get a lot of it quickly. Mm-hmm. And then it would exacerbate this euphoria. I've, I totally bypassed the euphoria, and then I just was boom into the drunk. And I was always generally drunk far faster than anybody else. And then all of a sudden, you just cross an invisible line. Mm-hmm. And I look to you like I'm still sitting here talking and everything's normal. Do you ever feel it coming on? Like during the drunk, do you ever like, oh my God, within five minutes, I'm not going to know what's going on? Nope. You don't. It's not caught. It's you not an awareness. No, really. You don't know. I one time was out drinking and I started in Dallas. Okay. And I, I didn't live on that side of town. I was always on the west side. Yeah. And so I was in Dallas and, um, or maybe I was in Fort Worth, I should say that. I was in Fort Worth and I, opened my eyes if you will i was awake um physically my body was awake Mm -hmm. i started with some friends in fort worth i had that backwards Mm -hmm. and whenever i opened my eyes i was in dallas Mm -hmm. on stage singing a cappella with a band of a completely different demographic in a culture and environment that i should not have been in it's very scary in that time and that frame for me by myself i mean it was like i did not know this environment or the people in it wow and I don't know how I got there. And none of the people I was drinking with in Fort Worth uh-huh. were over there. Oh, my God. I'm telling you, Michael, I would back before, um, you know, 2000, September of 2001, mm-hmm. you know, when the, unfortunately when the towers fell, you know, life was different. You could fly a little easier. Mm-hmm. Things were just different with regard to security and boarding passes and stuff. Mm-hmm. I got, I would get on an airplane and end up in Chicago when I was headed for you know, somewhere else. We're going to New York, and I'd end up in. I you mean, would just get on the wrong plane. And I just get just get drunk. 
and just get on. You could just get on. I know. You used to be able to do that. The people that weren't around pre-9-11, they don't They don't. To all the young kids out there, when you used to go to the airport, it used to be like a bus station. I had a flask. You could just roll in and roll out and meet people at the gate or not meet at the gate. Walk me down. Yeah. You could walk right on the plane, sit down. They didn't really ask you too much. I mean, they figure... Mm-mm. It was crazy back in the it day. Was, and remember, you know, back then it was everybody, it was hand all full. Bo- I mean, you could buy liquor, you could have your own. I really didn't want you to because they wanted to sell theirs. But yeah. I remember the pilot coming out of the cockpit and saying, you're too drunk to be on my plane. Mm-hmm. And he walked me back off the, not, I mean, he wasn't ugly, but he walked me off of the actual aircraft, and then somebody picked me up on the jet bridge, and then I just sat there, mm. right there at the gate for a little while, and then I got on another plane. <laughs> like, I'll get on the next That's plane. what my blackouts look like. Wow. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you remember when you used to be able to use smokerettes on the airplane? Oh, yeah. <laughs> People yeah. used to fire those up. They had a non-smoking section on the plane, and then the yeah. other, the, I yeah. think, was the, the, like the front was non-smoking, and the back was smoking. Yeah. I was like, this is ridiculous. I was flying, and I fly a lot with my job. I was uh, flying the other day, and I used the lavatory, and I was in the front, you know, and um, of the of the aircraft. And when I came out, I said, I thought this was a, a newer aircraft. And the flight attendant said, it is. And I said, well, why is there an ashtray in there? That just blows my my yeah. blows my mind. I've never even thought about it. And she said, in the event someone feels like they need to light up, and she even went through the motion of a, like a, her thumb being the lighter. And the, yeah. In the event someone feels like they need to light up, we have to have, by FAA rules, a place for them to put it out. And okay. I, I thought, well, that was interesting. Wow. Because there were still ashtrays in the bathrooms. Yeah. No, I, did. I have, noticed, have not noticed Never, that. Yeah. And I, also, maybe for international um, carriers or international flights, they might let them fly and smoke in other countries. When did it occur to you that you may have a problem with alcohol, and what did you do about that thought? It sounds like you were getting pretty wild to me at some points. When did it occur to you, oh, my God, I might have a problem. What did you do about that? I never really thought I had a problem. Come on, man. Come on. You know what I'm going to tell you right now is I would get arrested. You thought you had bad luck? No. Yeah. And when I lived in East Texas, I was like, why won't these freaking podunk town cops get off me? Yeah. I remember thinking, and I lived in a bigger city, and you mentioned it earlier with your folks, but Mm -hmm. I remember thinking to myself, if I could just change my last name or just change my identity, Mm -hmm. I didn't think that I had a problem with drinking. I thought I had a problem with driving because I only really got in trouble because mm-hmm. I got pulled over. But that's not the truth. My relationship, everything was failing. Mm-hmm. Nothing was moving forward. And I, I was harboring so much guilt, resentment, shame, and all of the different feelings of failure and, and lack of self-esteem and all of, the, all of that. But I never knew that alcohol was the problem. I was oblivious Really, it's other people have been on this podcast too. They're like, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what no. it was, and I didn't think alcohol was it. A lot of people that I've talked to, um, they say that they knew something was wrong, but they didn't know what it was. They were quite sure it was not alcohol. Alcohol was not the problem. Al- the alcohol was their solution and their best friend, not the problem. And then, you know, things kept progressing and progressing. Eventually, they realized, well, alcohol might have something to do with the fact that every area of my life is deteriorating. Um, so, did others ever confront you about your drinking or start to question your behavior besides the police department? Oh, yeah. That's the thing. Everybody else thought I had a problem drinking. <laughs> but I was in complete, I mean, utter, either a, 
just the naivety, oblivion, denial. Mm -hmm. I was like, get off of me. And my girlfriends that I had back then um, would say, if you would just not put liquor on top of your beer, if you would just not drink after nine o'clock, if you would just switch to just drink blush wine and Mm -hmm. all the things like, right. And I'm like, I don't know what you have a problem with. I have a crappy boyfriend or I picked this wrong thing or that job didn't do me right. It's all every them and they. Mm -hmm. It was always them and they. And then I used the crutch of, you know, my father died, boohoo, poor, Mm -hmm. you know, what was me? I had a boyfriend that wasn't nice to me, all of that. Mm -hmm. You know, I was fat as a kid and I was an ugly duckling or whatever. And I never thought, you know, I have a problem with alcohol until the very end. And I had a moment of clarity. Um, can we talk about that? Can you tell us a little bit about your moment of clarity? Yes, I was arrested for the fifth time, 40 WI. And I should mention I had probably six other arrests for anything related to alcohol disturbance, in, you know, in my whatever minor yeah. possession, public intoxication, theft. I mean, because I was under the influence. I mean, just stuff that was, I mean, just yeah. anytime I got in trouble, I had been drinking. So. Um, and again, I did not think I had a problem, but to the answer to your previous question, my mother, my friends, everyone, just the police department thought you had a problem clearly in multiple departments <laughs> yeah. at that. I mean, and they weren't in cahoots, Many jurisdictions. Over, they weren't like over the radio in cahoots with each other, you know, yeah. putting out APBs about it. But anyway, I, um, wait, wait, before, before you get your moment of clarity, what about all the guys you dated and stuff? Did any of your boyfriends or anybody like in that roll up on you and be like, dude, what are you doing? Would you not drink tonight? Or can you like tap the brakes? Did any of your significant romantic people ever tell you that you had a problem? Well, I'll start by telling you that I'm, that's one of the biggest problems I think that I had that I drank about and insulated against because if we can put a huge page holder right there on the moment of clarity, cause I think it rolls in or okay, go yeah. back. However you want to do it. Yeah. So don't, yeah, don't forget. To, uh, we'll get back to that. Cause the moment of clarity changed my life. I okay. mean, it was incredible, but I married this guy when I was probably 19. Mm-hmm that I had met and had flown up to another part of the country and he was in the military and one of my girlfriends I drank with in our teenage years, you know, the older one who got, she looked older and she got the booze. She went on to go to the military and I went and visited her at her barracks and met this guy and Oh, we fell in love. I mean, like a good alcoholic within three months, I was married to this guy, you know, and he was calling me on the cell phone. And back then I had a cell phone since, I don't know, in the mid early nineties, but it was probably 45 cents a minute. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was expensive. And my phone bill was about $450. That's like three paychecks at my age, you know? Right. And anyway, he flew down here after two or three months of phone calls and put a ring on my finger and we went to the courthouse and got married. Okay. I was in love with this guy and we were drunk before we got married. We stopped off and got, you know, alcohol. Mm-hmm. I mean, my mother didn't take off work. My sister, nobody came. It was a girlfriend of mine I'd known for a few years and her husband came and paid for it, the $40 at the courthouse. We didn't have any money. It was a joke. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, he was the first of four. Mm-hmm marriages that I would have by the time I got sober. And it was all like that. Every single time I would find us hostage, take it and make sure that he loved me or he was going to love me. And then basically he was the first victim, bless his heart. We had the, the marriage annulled and then there was another. And then, you know, there was just some trauma mixed into that. And then there was another and he was safe. And then there was another and all of them, 
I'm married forever. Each of the, every time that I got married, I was going to be married forever. If you will just love me and marry me, then the rest of my life doesn't, you know, previous to you doesn't matter. And then we can move forward from here. It'll all be different. It'll all be different. Subsequently, or I will say consequently, there were a couple of the relationships in um, my young, my young life after my first marriage was annulled. You know, I, I just, I chose partners that were absolutely unhealthy and unfortunately very toxic and didn't know that I was choosing them. I wanted clearly to be loved and to felt to feel love and to love somebody. I wanted to have somebody in a man masculine position to love me. And that had to have something to do with my father being gone. You know, all these years later, I look back, but unfortunately I survived quite a bit of domestic violence in one relationship in particular. And, um, and I had been, in a sexually violent situation in high school, when I got that DWI, I wasn't just drinking because she and I ran around together. I was already insulating against things that were happening that I wasn't telling anybody about, right? No one? You didn't tell anybody? No. I mean, no, because it was, I didn't know that that's not the way it was supposed to be because he was my boyfriend or sometimes he was. I didn't know that is how it wasn't. I didn't know. Mm so I drank, I drank myself good looking, I drank myself smart in and out of situations, you know, and then with this guy, you know, and and then I go on to marry somebody who's a nice person. I just, whatever, it was was a poor decision. And then the next partner I would choose would be my second abuser, incredibly abusive. And then that would, you know, end by me running from that relationship. And I survived that by the grace of God. Then I find another guy and he's the guy who comes in on a white horse. Mm-hmm. So all of these people drink with me, by the way. You asked me how that, that you know, they may have had a, a part to play or didn't, and, or what they thought. So I find the guy on the white horse after all this abuse and all this crap and all these young years, and, and we talk about marriage. I'm about 23, he's or 24 almost, and he's 27. And it's going to happen. I mean, Michael, he's a good dude. He's the good one. And I'm like, oh, finally. And then we're out drinking, running around with our pals, living in a small town outside of Fort Worth. And the guy walks into my house and into my bedroom one evening after we've been out having a good time and shoots himself in the head, dies right there. Boom. And I'm there. I give him CPR. You know, he, he ended up, obviously he died, but it was the most traumatic thing beyond my father dying that I, you know, could fathom. It's just, I mean, and I'm in my tw- early 20s, and here I've survived all these different levels of abuse by picking these partners that were no better than the next, and, and you know, they're wounded too, not to get, make excuse for them, but I don't even know, and I am too sh- proud to go back home to my mother. I don't live at home anymore. Now I'm living out in this other little town. So I go on from that by drinking for years and years. I hurt a lot of people over that and myself as well, right? A lot of shame and guilt and remorse. And I carried that until I got into the program, 12-step program and work steps. And I carried a lot of weight and baggage that wasn't mine, but I digress. So I moved on from that relationship. Over some time, I took off to East Texas and um, I worked in paramedicine and as a volunteer firefighter before that. But then I met my next husband, and he was super nice and super safe. He never laid a hand on me or said a mean word, and he drank with me, I mean, bottle for bottle, until he didn't. And then he would look at me and say, why is it that you have to continue? Why do you have to drink so much? You, you drink way too much. I don't want to go out to, to dinner tonight. You always seem to go over the top. And I would 
be defensive about that as if what were you drinking were you pounding wine or beer back then probably and i was shooting whiskey he didn't want to go out to dinner with you because you get all slurry or whatever. I'd get loaded in the first hour and a half or two, yeah. right? And he's milk, you know, milking a beer and enjoying happy hour chips and salsa. How did that make you feel when he said that to you? That make you mad? Yes, or? defensive. Yeah, that's exactly. I, that's I'm what like, I would got mad. Like, dude, what's your freaking problem, man? And then my, yeah. so we would divorce, you know. And 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 I should say, for the listeners who may identify or may not, you know, I. You know, my relationships that happened that were, you know, there's trauma mixed in there and, and, and some trauma makes it harder for the next relationship and or something else in life. You know, we carry those scars are still there. Right. But I lost my first child as a result of um, domestic violence. And then I lost my second, you know, pregnancy, I should say, um, as a result of I don't, I don't know if that was just natural, but I was drinking. And mm-hmm. I'm not proud of that. And I drank throughout that. And I was working, you know, in EMS. And I was married to my third uh, husband. And then um, and we divorced. You know, he asked me to stop drinking. And then after the miscarriage and the, you know, the different emotions that came with that, we decided to part ways. Mm-hmm. A year and a half went by and I stayed single and did whatever. And then I found, you know, who would be my at this point, my last husband that I've, I haven't been married or arrested since I came into the program, <laughs> but I, um, you know, we, we got married and then one day he said to me, why am I finding bottles just everywhere around the house hidden? And I said, well, you've told me that you don't want me to drink anymore. And so I figured if you just don't see him, you know, it's just the irrational thinking. If you don't see That's him. That's not a very rational response <laughs> no. to his question. And why are you hiding it? Well, I don't want you to see it. You, know? you didn't want me to drink. So. You don't want me to drink, so I'm going to hide it. Well, then he would say. That's not what he meant. I know. He said, I know. Because he said, I don't want any more alcohol in this house. So I was like, well, how about I hide it? You know, yeah. and then I'd hide it out in the barn, you know. I mean, yeah. it's not the house. I mean, yeah, whatever. So yeah. basically, we went to the movie one time, in the, one time in this little tiny town and, you know, a little old, you know, red padded chairs you know that folded down and then you know amphitheater style seating and i had beer in my purse and they were in bottles and they rolled down no they did not they rolled i mean how loud was that it was super stupid that's embarrassing for him (laughs) for me i'm like oh god well give me another one i mean and he looked at me and he goes why do you have to have beer at the movie and it just dawned on me. And even today, I remember being just, I remember being so aware and, and at that moment in time. And I said, because there's a lot of stuff I don't remember, right? I mean, I drank through it. I didn't give my brain the chance to make memories, which is scary. That's the blackout, you know? Mm-hmm. So I looked at him and I said, you ask me why I have to have beer at the movies? My question for you is, why do you not? Like, this is natural. This is my normal. I mean, I didn't say those words then. But you thought it. This is my normal. Why is it so weird to you that I want to drink? Yeah. And that's when I was like, I guess other people just don't drink the way I do. Because, so, I mean, this isn't going to work. And our marriage didn't work because he asked me, Uh you know, will you please stop drinking? And I, you know, it's going to, and then he gave me an ultimatum and I chose alcohol. Uh And he gave me the opportunity. I have, thank God. I had the opportunity to make amends to my third husband and the very nice one, um, and then you know my my last husband. I only really say two. I always say I've been divorced twice because the first two were annulled, so uh-huh. they kind of don't count. What I say, but anyway, at um, the end of the day, my last husband um, he gave me the opportunity to make amends via FaceTime, 
and um, he had divorced. He had married again, had a son, and good for him. And then he gave me the opportunity to make amends. And then actually we reconnected during COVID in person mm-hmm. and we dated. Really? Yeah, it was very interesting and it was very familiar. And then after about six weeks, after how's your mom and them and what's been going on, there was really nothing there. We realized we weren't a match probably ever. And right. the most remarkable and highest compliment, you know, I've received has that has been in the 12 step program and how I carry myself. But second to that, he said, I don't recognize you at all. And wow. you're incredibly attractive but in a way that I can't explain with just the way you carry yourself and how far you've gone in your life from where you came he said I always thought it was my fault that you couldn't quit drinking and and I explained to him that it wasn't and all the you know all the things but wow that's a lot for him to carry it was a lot all these years but you know when I had a chance to make amends several years ago I told him he said the same thing but in person it was it was really remarkable, and it was a healing closure for both of us that we really weren't a match. We probably never were. It was a great time, good uh-huh. memories, and um, COVID brought some such uncertainty for everybody, and that was familiar, like an old sweatshirt. You know? Wow, that's so. that's a beautiful story. I want to read a couple of announcements, and then I want to get back to your moment of clarity. Can sure. we do that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so here comes some announcements. I want to remind you that our website, SoberShares.com, is ready for you to explore. You can listen to all of our episodes, join our email list, and leave me a voicemail that I may play on a later episode of Sober Shares. You can access all of our social media platforms like Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can email all of your comments and suggestions directly to me. Um, my email is mike at SoberShares.com. You can make a financial donation to help us cover our monthly operating expenses by clicking the PayPal button on the website and use a credit card or a debit card, and it'll take only two minutes or less. You can also send a direct payment via PayPal to Mike at SoberShares.com if you want to do it that way. I want to thank our listeners who have made a financial donations to help us move this project forward. We had three last week, and we're super excited about that. I want to assure you that I take this show seriously, and I value your time and attention as a listener, and our single focus at SoberShares is to make sure that your listening experience is top quality and first rate, and our guiding light here is to help people. And I also wanted to take a second and let everybody know that's out there listening that tomorrow will be our two-month anniversary uh, for Sober Shares uh, as far as it being launched two months tomorrow. And as of about an hour ago, we're sitting at 939 downloads. And so that's pretty exciting that we're out there and you guys are listening. So we wanted to tell you thank you for that. And I wanted to thank all of our guests and um all the people that helped us move this project forward into production mode. And we're going to keep pushing forward and creating the best content that we can uh, create for you guys to enjoy. So let's get back to Andy and have her tell us about her moment of clarity. Yeah, sure. The best part, I think for me in my story is what happened, right? Like we always talk about what it was like, what happened and then what it's like now. And of course the, what it's like now is, tenfold better than what it was like but so I was arrested in um in Fort Worth I was coming home from a friend's house and somebody I had not seen in several years and I remember I had worked uh at a probably a dead-end job and I had a two-day project and the first day on the Thursday went off without a hitch March 12th great day one went off so like a good kind of alcoholic I went and got loaded I mean I just was like let's let her rip 
And then on, I caught up with a high school pal or somebody that I had known. I think Facebook was really launching back then. I was on Facebook in 2003 when it was a college thing, and I was trying my hand at college back then. But I basically was driving, and there was a man laying in the road. And I stopped, and I was in Arlington. I was coming back into Arlington, but there was a man in the road. And when I pulled over, he popped up his head. He, like, popped up off the ground and stuck his head in my window. And you know when we're drinking. I mean, you know, Mike, it's like, oh, they're good people. I mean, when we're loaded, everybody's good people. You know, this is my friend. Hey, this is my pal. Well, he's like, can I use your phone? I mean, this is in the middle of the road. <laughs> the middle of the road, and I kind of pull over a little bit, and I think I'm on the shoulder. And... I said, sure, you can use my phone. I rolled the window down. Are you okay? And he's like, yeah, let me use your phone. I mean, I don't know this man from Adam. He's been laying in the road. And he just pops up. Well, then the police, whoop, whoop, they lit me up. I'm like, where? I mean, I'm almost home. I'm trying to be a good Samaritan. Like, what? Right? And I mean, not any, there's no accountability on my part. Like, I am completely drunk and, and don't need to be driving. But I'm helping this guy. Why are you pulling me over? You know, you know how that skewed thinking, right? So, very long story short, they take me to jail and they take him away. And it turns out that he was on the run as a felon, and I think he was wanted for like heinous acts um, towards women and others. So, in fact, it there was intervention right there because I could have lost my life to the guy that was just going to use my phone. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> so anyway, I get to jail, and um, you know, I I'm in the drunk tank. And once again, here I am with all these other people that are nothing like me. You know, this level of gutter bravado is one of the stories in a piece of the literature and 12-step program. I'm looking down my nose from the gutter, right? And I asked the jailer, I'm like, hey, can I use the restroom? And this little woman comes by, and she's probably, and I stand pretty tall, and she at that time, I mean, she was probably to my shoulders, and she was swinging her keys, she was as big around as she was tall, bless her heart. And she, she said, what is it? And she hollered my last name out. And, and I said, I need to use the ladies' room. And she said, there's one behind you, meaning in the cell, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm, I'm not using the bathroom. So I just, I said, ma'am, please, I'm going to be sick. This was the morning after. So now we're at March 13 and 2009. And I said, I need to use please let me use the restroom. And so she did. But before she did, she said, I want to tell you something. And I'm going to tell you, Mike, they say around the groups and rooms of, um, you know, recovery, like when the student is ready that the teacher appears. And so she said to me when I I said, please let me. And she said, I'm going to tell you something. And it was like my antennas were on and my ears were open. And I heard her voice come straight into my ears and she said, you disgust me. And I was so taken aback, like blown over. Like, who is she to tell me? Right? Like immediately defensive porcupine. What are you, you know, running my neck around in a circle? Like, who is she talking? And then I stopped and she said, because you have such potential and you have no idea what you could do. But you're such a waste. You're just wasting all of it and it hit me in a way like this little woman a completely different demographic in a completely different role you know I have a dead-end job she clearly has a career path of some sort whether she's a jailer or heading up the whatever she's doing 
I mean, we didn't come from the same lands of, of this earth and language alone. I didn't even, the words were not even making sense until they did. It was the strangest thing. It was like the white light moment, you know, like a burning bush. And I was like, so I go into the restroom. She lets me go into the restroom and I look into the mirror, the funny, you know, slanted mirror so you don't break it and hurt yourself or others. And I didn't know who was looking back at me. And I, for the very first time, I was like, I need help. That's when it came. I'm like, I have a problem and I don't know how I got here. And so I called my mom. You know, she was once again coming to rescue me and bail me out. And when I met her at her car, I got in the car. And, you know, just it, that feeling, just the shame, the, the stink, the day after jail, you smell. I was, ugh. And I get in her car, and she's going to take me to get my truck out of tow one more time. And I said, I need to go to a meeting or I need treatment. I don't know where those words came from. I didn't even know what that meant, but I remember saying them. And she looked at me and like the face, her face just went colorless. And she said, okay, whatever that means, we'll figure it out. And um, so we went and got my truck out of tow. Now, mind you, every other time I'd got my truck out of tow, it was always like, if I can just get it and go get me something to drink, and I'll just figure out the you know the attorney situation and the money situation for this DWI or this arrest. If I can just get to the next drink, I'll figure this out. And that time I was like, I just got to get home. And I went home, um, and I detoxed for a couple of days, and I don't recommend that um, in serious condition that I was in. It was not healthy, but... Um, here I am, it, you know, it worked, and I, um, on Sunday, was able to go to a meeting, and I had made my decision on March 13, so I consider that my spready date, but on March 15, I went to my first meeting, and I have not yet gone back out to have another drink, but the moment of clarity came when that, and I don't know if that was, you know, God speaking through her. I don't, there's really, I not, think a, so. there's really not a doubt in my mind there was, but I don't know if it was at that moment or what word it was or what point it was, but it all collectively, it was like I was washed with emotion and clarity and clean. Like, I, yeah. I don't want this life anymore and I don't know who I am, but she just helped me to, to get here. I, I, I don't know. It was your time. It, I finally heard the uh, message. Yeah, other people have probably said similar stuff to you. For years. It bounced off of you. But when you were sitting in that jail, you were ready to hear that that yeah. day. That's a beautiful story. So how did you find that first AA meeting? Did you, like, call 411, or how did you find it? I remember when we would do that, yeah. yeah. I guess we still could, you know. I guess you could. I uh, haven't done I it I haven't done it in a while, <laughs> yeah. Um, it was like 877 or something before, or that was the weather. Uh, so I, um, you know, I went home, and we weren't using laptops, you know, at home yet back then so much as we are now but some of us were but I had a desktop computer slow dial up and um I got on I don't even know if it was Google back then but yeah, I, it was probably something else. I can't remember what it was but I AOL or some something, search engine yeah something and I www.alcoholics you know or yeah. help for drunks you know and uh-huh. I found um I found a phone number and I maybe even had a yellow book I 
Oh yeah, I may have had yellow pages. Yellow yeah. pages. Those yep. are funny. Yeah. Yeah, and um, up until a few years ago, I still got them on the porch. But I, you know what? I until somebody finally probably realized we were not using them like at all. Yeah. No, like stop printing. So we, uh, which is sad, a time of the past, right? Mm-hmm. So we, uh, I called this number and and we get to chatting this man and I and I said, how am I going to find the meeting? I because I told him where I lived or the area. Mm-hmm. You know, I just unzipped and like told my life story to this poor guy that was answering the phone. And now I know because I've answered the phone, you know, mm-hmm. but he told me um, we're located and I think I was over in, you know, east of Arlington somewhere, probably Grand Prairie. And anyway, the man said, you'll know where we are because there'll be a neon sign with an arrow over the door and it'll say drunks. And I just, he laughed. He just started cutting up laughing. Was and he I, kidding or was he serious? Yeah, he was kidding, but yeah. I didn't know. I was like, this is so serious. I was like, that's an interesting club if they have Yeah, because he goes, it's going to have a neon arrow pointing to the door that'll say drunks here, you know? I mean, and it was like funny to him. And I yeah. was like, uh, you know, I didn't get it. But that's not funny to me. So I went, no, I was like, what do you know if you knew, you know? Yeah. But so that's where I started. And I went for about three months until a gentleman turned turned me on to another group where there were more women mm-hmm. and I didn't know that's what I needed but that's where I went what did you think about those first few meetings when they're talking about God and steps and insanity and what were you thinking when you saw that stuff I don't know except for that I was like you know I saw the word God and I it wasn't there I didn't find pause of any sort I almost felt gratitude because I knew something about God at least what I'd been taught mm-hmm. Right. So it was a familiar word, familiar name, a familiar, you know, and so from, I'll just say, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it was a familiar pronoun that I did not have a problem with and I was not afraid. But you know what? That first meeting, I'll tell you in particularly, the, um, the meeting was called the Ask It Basket. Okay. Have you ever that? been to one of those? Yeah, I have. I tell the listeners. It's a what that long is. time ago. And so they don't you don't hear her do that very often and I can understand why now after the question I wrote. But basically they <laughs> have a little little piece of paper, you know, paper and little pencils, you know, that used to go like in the back of the pew at church, little tiny pencils, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, you write a question down, the basket is passed around and you toss your question in there and then the chair will pick a question and read it and that would be the topic mm-hmm. and so I remember I knew what mine looked like I wasn't sitting far from the chair I remember the man's name is Lorenzo and so um it, it Lawrence but Lorenzo and so he was sitting, <laughs> sitting there and he read my question and he put it to the side and his face was like this like almost just kind of like what in the heck and so and then it was some simple question but I'll never forget it because my question was, will I feel as much pain sober as I have felt while I was drinking? I mean, that's just another one of those, like, where did that come from? Yeah. You know, I don't really remember knowing that I was so wounded or in so much pain. I don't remember that being, like, cognizant of that or aware. But the first few meetings, you know, I didn't know anything else except to just show up and you know how folks do i mean i just started my turn to share i'll just lie 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 about whatever i was doing that day or where i had been until someone pulled me aside and said you need to find a woman to work with and we call those sponsors and this is what you know this looks like so she could guide me with some fundamentals on probably being quiet for a little while and and tell me what the steps were about but 
to be very candid with you, Mike, I didn't have a problem at all with any of it. I just walked in almost in the same oblivion that I left the the last realm in, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't know I had a problem. Yeah. So I walk in and I'm like, I want what y'all got. I, 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 give me the Kool-Aid. Yeah. Yeah. It felt good in here. You know, they look like me. Tell me about your AA sponsor, your first one. And how did you find them? So when I was over at um, this group, you know, there was a man, he, uh, his name was Jim and he was an older man and a very nice man, former like Navy SEAL and all this. And, there were really no women at the time frame that I could go because I was still working, obviously, a you know, the, the, the dead-end job at the time. And very bottom line, he said, I really highly encourage you to get over to this other group in Arlington and where there's more women in, in the evening because you need to find someone to sponsor you. So he sponsored me for mm-hmm. the first couple of months in, in, in a way by just – because I kept going and kept going, kept going. And then finally he said something about going over to Arlington. Unfortunately, Jim died about two years ago, not sober. You know, he only had like one leg and, you know, one arm or something. It was just very terrible and sad, very real and how progressive and fatal the disease is. But uh, he took me to another, or, you know, turned me on to and took me, and then he ended up going himself. So if, I went to this meeting uh, in Arlington and I've, I walk in and there was a man there who's still my friend today, and after a meeting or two, I shared I was looking for a sponsor, and he turned me on to a young woman not much older than myself. She had been in the penitentiary for the first three years of her sobriety, and she knew the book back and forth, in inside and out, and I fell in love with the literature. I fell in love with the book because I could understand it, and it made sense to me. And then she ended up having about five years of sobriety, I think. Maybe she had six. Um, and she married um, a man that was also in the program, had come into our group. And then, unfortunately, the turn of events that went on in her life, she would go back out and go back to the penitentiary, I think, and finish her parole, something to that effect. Um, not my story but to tell, but I felt like there was a shift after about a year of working with her. And so I'll tell you the truth. There was a woman, and now I'm always telling the truth. I never start a sentence like that. I don't know why I just did. There's a woman at the end of the table from where I sat, and her name um, is Dion, was Dion. And Dion sat at the end of the table with such dignity and such grace, and she's incredibly beautiful, and she was older and well put together and very well spoken. And I didn't know those were the things about her and the characteristics. I couldn't name them all, those object uh, adjectives. But I wanted what she had. And so one day I called her. I asked her if I could call her on the phone. And she said, sure. And I was so, uh, she had about 38 years of sobriety. And she died two years ago with 47 years, I think. Um, but I asked her to sponsor me, and she hadn't sponsored in a long time. Oh, really? And the woman that she still sponsored lives in North Carolina um, and is actually my friend today because we've connected over, you know, her passing, unfortunately. And she was married to a man who was also sober in the program, and he passed, and then she did, you know, two years ago. But she was dignified, and she was solid, and she was raw, and she was honest, and she guided me in such a way that when we did the steps, you know, some of the inventory and the parts that are difficult in step four and then telling somebody about it in step five, 
you know, she got to chuckling and laughing when I was telling her my stuff, which is step five. And I said, why are you laughing? And she said, oh, honey, I'm not laughing. I'm just remembering. And that made me feel human, you know, made me feel normal. And she, she as, as did the first sponsor, they both said, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous full-time. You've earned your seat. You're here. You've done it. You know, now the hard part's over. Let's Let's dig a little deeper and figure out how we can avoid these pitfalls, you know, by six and seven and as we go on, right? Mm-hmm. And she and I worked together for about two years, I think. And uh, then she and her husband needed to go to a group that was very much smaller so that they could, you know, they were aging and the hearing loss for him and things of that nature. So I didn't see her you know, in person, the phone calls were getting a little further apart because she wasn't available. And, and I'm hungry, as hungry today as I was then. And I remember thinking, I don't know what to do, but I got to do something else. And so I found the woman I work with now and I asked her if she had availability and she said, I have an opening, you know, and that's almost (laughs) 10 years ago, I guess. And she said, I have an opening. And, um, she interviewed me like she asked me some questions like how serious are you what do you have going on I've seen you around this group what this that and the other and I was a little taken aback and intimidated but this woman has changed my life you know with her help my life has changed so uh, I should say her and God obviously God being number one and then AA and then she comes really second close to to the, the one who's helped me change my life. And um, even today, she has me working on some things that are really difficult. I've really got some some growing to do and didn't know that. So that's my story of sponsorship thus far. That's beautiful. You just mentioned that you're working on unpacking some things with your sponsor. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, recently, and, and you know, maybe another, uh, excuse me, a number of others are feeling the same way, just with the different levels of uncertainty that are going on in our world, much less our nation and our local levels of just change right now. You You're know, talking about anxiety or? With COVID and with things. Fear. So people have fear and things. So, you know, it's not, I don't think it's unheard of that I have a little anxiety, but I'm in recovery and I have some anxiety. So I have to be super careful and I need to be accountable with my sponsor. What does that look like and what steps am I taking? You know, and I do have a medical doctor that I see because I've had some issues with, you know, physical pain and chronic pain throughout my recovery. I mean, throughout my recovery, I've dealt with chronic pain from some of the choices I made in my previous life, right? And the individuals that that I spent time with and the domestic violence, quite candidly, Um, And I've had surgeries and procedures in my heart and what have you. And then I get to this place where the world is different. I haven't drank. Uh, AA is different. To be very, you know, direct and candid, our fellowship has shifted. And What do you mean by that? Even conferences and meetings, things aren't the same, right? Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Like a lot of our big time conferences, the international has been shut down and we're we're having to wear masks and social distance and not hold hands anymore when we say the Lord's Prayer. It's it's coming back a little bit, but yeah, we've been through a lot. So our groups, lots of groups split, my, you know, my former home group split. So all of that uncertainty, right? And you know what else is crazy? I've seen, I've known a lot of long-term people that have relapsed. 30 plus years. And that makes me wonder. So we dig in and say, I don't want to take anybody any inventory of whatsoever, but I would dig in and say to myself, are you depending on the fellowship and the meetings 
Or are you depending on your higher power and your relationship with your sponsor and the steps? Are you digging in? Like, right? Like you just said, I'm unpacking some stuff with her. And the reason I am is because I felt some anxiety. And the thought about drinking has shifted, you know, has shifted, you know, my gears a couple of times or I've shifted gears. And I never have gone to the place where I'm salivating or leaning over the counter going, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab one out. I'm just going to drink. And that's not it. I get on this binge thinking, you know, and I get on to something that it drives me to the gates of insanity or death, just like it says in more about alcoholism and the piece of the literature that's used in AA, you know, in that chapter, it's like our thought process and our, our drinking drives us to those gates. My thoughts have been off the rails and I don't know if it's from those things that we just talked about, COVID or the shift and just how things are happening or not happening. Um, and so I needed to deal with them you know, what's going on in me? And so basically to answer your question, what it looks like is my sponsor has me, I'm working the steps with her. I've asked her if I could do that. And I think it's important to stay in the steps. And I basically, I'm writing letters to God. I'm reading something spiritual. And then I'm writing back to myself okay. as if it's from God. Okay. And I'll tell you that the day before yesterday, I, uh, I wrote and I just said, God, why do I feel this way? Why am I feeling restless, irritable, and discontent? God, why am I feeling anxiety? Why am I angry with so-and-so? Why am I feeling all this potential passive-aggressive behavior? Just some candor, right, to be honest with your listeners, too, because I don't know what they're thinking or if they felt it, especially in our world, you know, it's just different. And then basically, you know, I thanks for my sobriety and this, that. And then I read something spiritual, a daily reflection, a day to time, something, you know, and a scripture or whatever it may be. And then I walk away for about five minutes and I come back to it. And then I write the letter to me. And I had written, and I'll tell you the truth, from the bottom of my heart, I feel disconnected and I feel a bit lonely and I'm not quite sure what's going on with me, God. And I'd really like, you know, guidance and direction when I came back and I wrote back to myself, I said, Dear Andy, you are not lost. I am right here. And I, in that moment, knew, you know, whether it was just intuitive thought or it was coming through the pen or my subconscious, it doesn't matter how the wheel was made. You just roll the wheel, right? So or how the clock was made, just let it tick. I have walked away from my conscious contact my step 11, my, am I staying in conscious contact with God? Am I continuing to pray and meditate? Probably, but not any more than surface level. And sometimes even in our literature says that, it's okay, just continue to pray. No matter what you do, just keep praying. So it makes me wonder, as you've mentioned, you know, the people that have gone back out, was their dependence um, on their higher power? Were they doing all the work? I don't know the answers to those questions, right? We don't know, but I don't want to go there. Yeah, I don't want to be. I don't want to be in the boat with the people who are like, you know, screw it. Let's yeah. just jump in as opposed to continuing to row towards shore, you know? Yeah. So that's really it. And I'm, and she is, I'm accountable with her. So the anxiety will lessen. I need outside help. I have to get that. And I will do this step work and continue to write. And I want to find the relief because I want, I want more. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the idea that, um, there's two different ways, in my opinion, to hang out in AA or around AA. There's people that hang out in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, and then there's people that hang out on the periphery of Alcoholics Anonymous. Can you maybe 
speak to a little bit about your experience about witnessing people doing that or have you done anything like that have you always been in the middle since you've got here or did you hang out on the edge for a little bit uh, no I was in the middle from in the beginning and I have been just in the herd I mean in the middle of it mm. like okay I mentioned earlier I like the Kool-Aid I'll drink some I was making the Kool-Aid I was in charge of stirring it and pouring it in and <laughs> then one time I was getting the ice the other time I'm handing out cups like right I've always just yeah. tried to be in the herd yeah Nowhere in my life did I ever feel like I fit in. So when I got to this place that I did, yeah, right, yeah. I, um, I'm like, I'm in. Well, what do you need? I'm bringing cookies. I'm bringing soap to the group. I'm coordinating all, rides. I'm doing whatever. <laughs> I'm cleaning the bathrooms when nobody's there because I'm doing service work. It's important to, to give back, right, yeah. and to be of service in any capacity that's healthy and, um, and, and you know, and then COVID. Right. And it's not all about COVID, but then COVID and my home group split and mm -hmm. I moved because of some of the beautiful changes that have happened in my life by the grace of God and the help of, of people um, in AA and others, you know, my life changed. And so I haven't been able to stay in that old home group. Uh, so I had to find somewhere else to go at 11 years sober. I moved to another town and you know, I didn't know anybody there at that group, really. And then I go to another group, and I go to another group, and I'm trying to find a foothold. So so in response to your question, I am currently still hanging on to the core of some of the people that are still around, thankfully, from when I was in the middle of the herd. Mm -hmm. But I have found myself in recent times around the edge, on the cuff. Mm -hmm. And um, kind of like I'm not dancing on the green. I'm I'm on the you know mm -hmm. I'm around I'm on the edge and mm -hmm. and so I have written about that mm -hmm. to God in my letters to God and I've talked to my sponsor about it and so I've made commitments to chair a meeting specifically at, at, at a certain group and be available at another group and I have had to make myself get back into the middle mm -hmm. because. It's just when we look up and think it's only been two days or it's only been four days since I've been to the gym or I, you know, I haven't, you know, done this in a few, pretty soon it's six weeks and two months. And as we get closer to the outer edges of the herd, mm -hmm. you know, as we've seen on Nat Geo, you know, you get snatched up by the whatever predators hanging around, you know. Yeah, totally. Hang out on the periphery of Alcoholics yep. Anonymous and I get picked off a lot better than, a lot easier for the predator to get you in the edge of Alcoholics Anonymous mm -hmm. in the middle. Um, I want to talk about why is going to meetings important. And we just totally just did talk about it, but I want to like throw my two cents in on that. So I had like, I don't know, I'm going to say I had four years sober and I was hitting it hard and I was in the middle of alcoholics and I was, I was feeling, I was getting real big spiritual and I got a good job and I got a good girlfriend and I got a good car and things started going my way. And I was slowly by little, not consciously, but in reality, backing off meetings a little bit here, a little bit there. And then, all of a sudden, I was working six days a week, and I only had one day off, a, four days off a month, and I had to do my dry cleaning, and I wanted to, so anyways, I just kind of like stopped going to meetings a little bit, not on purpose, but I did, and then, like, I realized that it had been a week since I had been to a meeting, and then two, and then I got to 21 days, and I had never been ever since I had been sober 21 consecutive days without going to a meeting, and so I started to say, well, I started to talk to myself a little bit, I'd be like, Mike you're an alcoholic, you need to go to these meetings um, or else you're in trouble. So I would like try to force myself to go and make myself go. And I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't get, I couldn't get my car to go there. And so eventually I got to the point where I just started praying and asking God to take me and help me get back. Cause I was like, I really, 
I know what's going to happen if I stop going to meetings. Like I know what's going to happen. And I don't want that. I've got my little four year sobriety chip in my pocket. I got a nice little car, nice little girlfriend, nice little job. And I know I don't want to throw it all away. So I just had to get to a point where I prayed to God to get me back to the Aquarius group, which is, you know, it's kind of, it's my home group, I guess. And that's what I'm struggling. Let me shift gears real quick. I'm also struggling with that. Um, let's end that, let's end that story and let's move on to another story. So, uh, for the last 18 years I have claimed, and I guess I still do claim, uh, the, the Aquarius group, uh, in Dallas as my, um, home group. Well, guess what? I've been going like for the last two years, I think 90 to 95% of my meetings have been now at the Preston group, which is another group in Dallas. And so I'm like at this weird spot in my, in my life where I'm trying to figure out, it's not super, super important, but like, what is my home group? Like I'm lost a little bit. Like, is it still Aquarius or is my home group the Preston group or where do I belong? I mean, I love and respect both of them and they both have comfortable chairs. You know, that's a big deal for me. I'm not a metal folding chair guy. I mean, you've got to have nice padded <laughs> chairs. So uh, both groups have nice seating arrangements and nice people. But, um, and I, I shared that in a meeting the other day at a new meeting at Aquarius. I was like, yo, I don't, know where my home group is anymore. I don't know if it's you guys or if it's over at Preston. And uh, so that's something I'm still struggling with. I guess I'll talk to my sponsor about that and then see what he says. Um, I wanted to ask you if you can give me an example of one of the promises coming true in your life, maybe as it relates to employment or uh, your health or anything that you can think of where one of the examples of uh, the promises coming true in your life. I absolutely can. And, um, you know, it's funny that you mentioned because I've been praying to God to lead me to where I would find a home group. And the one group I've not been to but don't live far from is the Aquarius group. And I thought, you know, maybe I, and I'm a nooner. I like to go and I noon. love nooners. So, because I, by the time, you know, and, and very candidly again, you know, when these promises have started to come true in my life and I actually have a job that you guys have helped me get and keep, by the end of the afternoon, I'm tired. You yeah. know, I, I want to go on home. You talking about those six o'clocks? Yes, six o'clock to about six thirty is. Some people love those. It's pushing it, you know. Yeah. I want to go home, and yeah. so if I'm able now in my in my career, mm-hmm. I'm able. I have I work autonomously at home remotely, which is a complete blessing that someone actually trusts me to show up mm-hmm. for work every day. Um, and you know, I want to go to a noon meeting and then, you know, be done. I do go to a women's meeting at, um, on Thursday nights and I enjoy that fellowship, but so I'm glad you brought up the Aquarius group. Cause that obviously kind of resonated with me on a number of levels. Mm-hmm. I have been writing about it. You know, my health, I, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia probably about a year and a half sober because I was in chronic pain and couldn't figure that out. Didn't know what was going on. Even went to the Mayo Clinic. You know, they've got to have the answers. You Google broken fingernail and Mayo Clinic comes up. They've got to have the answers. My Mm -hmm. expectations of doctors has been incredibly high, you Mm -hmm. know, until I realized that they're just doing a job and and they're practicing. They're just practicing. Yeah. So um, I got some answers when I got back to Dallas-Fort Worth all those years ago. And over the years... I've continued to take better care of myself. And no matter how far down the scale I have gone, I can see that my past can benefit others because I've shared with other women, you know, even, and other men that I've been in chronic pain, whether it was my head, my neck, my knees, my joints, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I've taken the right steps and treated myself uh, better health-wise and, and diet-wise and taken the proper medications prescribed and as they're prescribed and then weaned off of them when I could, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and not even controlled substances, just vitamins as opposed to medicines um, to become more healthy. 
And, you know, my story can help others because we don't have to use or drink in chronic pain. I don't have to eat pain pills um, and or go back out on alcohol either because of pain. There are other ways. I've done water aerobics, all the, the different things. You know, you throw a remedy, eat natural honey to, you know, with your allergies, all the all of the different remedies. But with prayer meditation and then alternative actions, I've had incredible promises come true. And, you know, I was telling just to tell your listeners, to tell the listeners here, you know, I was telling Mike when I got here, you know, I I'd had um, a meeting this afternoon and then another meeting with my boss that was, you know, impromptu. He called me. What was your first thought when he called you? Well, not, he called me during the noon meeting, and I'm like, I'm fired. I'm, the first thought. <laughs> How dare you? It always says, I mean, it's like, why do we go there? The jigs up. Why? Like, why does my mind, I've not done anything without integrity. I've not done all these, you know, what is it that makes me go, I'm getting fired. Yeah. It's Friday. It's my last day. I'm going to pick up your stuff. You know, he he called me, and, and I'll, I'll preface this next statement by saying, when I first got sober, I was barely paying rent in a job that was paying me just enough. And I was, you know, it, and I, like I said, I was in a lot of pain and I went to a number of doctors. I've since had my C-spine repaired by a surgeon. I've had an artificial disc put in my heart. I've had all kinds of amazing things happen because I dug with no fingernails into the walls of ice to get to the top and figure out what was on the other side as, an, as my advocate for myself, you know, and, and with... AA and God's help, certainly. But, you know, I didn't have two wooden nickels rubbed together. I slept with my dog sometimes and my cat in my truck. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had nothing and barely had a piece or two of furniture I, I put together in dead-end jobs. And then I went back to school when I got into AA. And then I got an undergraduate degree. And then I got a master's degree. And then I got a real estate license. And I got educated and I put energy where I used to dump it down the down the drain I put energy into making better life choices and my self-esteem started to develop my self-worth developed now those are tangible things with regard to the degrees but the effort and the energy and the courage and the strength that God and AA gave me self-respect just standing up straight like you know what (laughs) I did it too and I never thought I had I never thought I could. I never thought I had a shot at getting what other people had done because I didn't go to school right after college and stay in it and get a job and keep it for 20 years like my some of my co- you know peers and cohorts from school. Mm-hmm. Um, I bought a home when I was three years sober because you guys helped me clean up my credit and then buy a house. And I ended up selling that home and leaving my home group. But my career, the trajectory, I have climbed and struggled and trudged this happy, you know, this road of happy destiny. I've continued to trudge it. And my boss, gave, you know, gave me a job. I, tra- I transitioned to a new role that was actually a promotion from my last job, and I was incredibly grateful and I was excited to start. and And you know, didn't it's been surreal this last year and a half or more. And today, when he called me. He said, now I, I say this to you guys, and to you, Mike, I guess you're listening to me right now, with hum, in humility, the very, very bottom of my heart that I usually cry at this, at this time, that I did never expected to be alive, number one. Number two, in a role, in a career with a company 
that could ever see I had potential. I never had the self-esteem. I never really had anybody just holding me up and pushing me forward until I got to AA and got my life, you know, on a different track. But my boss called me today, and um, and then I, I could see the voicemail. And I through the rest of the meeting, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I got you. what did he say? And I got in my truck after the meeting, and I gave him a call, and it went to voicemail. And I'm like, well, see, now I just need to go to UPS and mail my computer in. I mean, he's not even taking my calls. Mm-hmm. And so um, he called me back, and I answered the phone, and we spoke. And uh, we connected, I think, two or three times we actually played phone tag. And he said, I'm calling you with good news. And I'm like, thank God, because I just didn't want to get fired. And I didn't say that out loud. And he said, I am promoting you um, to vice president of your department. All right. And I cried. And I said, you know, to God immediately, quietly, you know, I give you the glory, right? And and then he said, well, was it give you all the paperwork will be final next week. But he said you have worked incredibly hard and I knew when you got here there was a lot of potential and I said you actually took a chance on me and I'm grateful for that the last individual I worked for said I would never promote under his leadership I don't know who says that to someone but I didn't allow that to stop me I instead got busy and I got busy praying and working steps and going to more meetings and talking about it with my sponsor and getting solutions from her as opposed to casting a wide net into a room full of, you know, folks. I try to take solutions to meetings and my problems to my sponsor because most times my solutions are worse than my problems. So I get them from her and some, you know, others. I've got a a mentor that's um, got about 58 years sober you know, as well. He's a spiritual mentor for me. I, I think you know him, you know, Bob. And yeah, and so I try uh, to get him on here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a, he has an incredible story and an incredible. I got to call him on my way home from here. Okay. Um, yeah. He's, he's, I call him, try to call him once a week, but or more. Um, so if, to be elevated to a position. And then he immediately said, you know, I thank you for giving me any kind of credit for helping you, but, um, it's yours. I'm turning this entire department over to you. And uh, he said, you are capable, you're willing, you're teachable. I mean, all the things. I couldn't have, I couldn't have imagined in a million years the girl who was walking down 360 with a broken flip-flop, you know, trying to get a next drink. Mm -hmm. Because my truck had a breathalyzer, my bike had a flat, and I was trying to get to the next drink. I, hadn't, I was kiting checks. I was robbing Peter to pay Paul. I had no self-esteem, no self-worth. I have more emotional and physical scars. And that's it. They're just scars. And every once in a while, they're tender. Mm-hmm. But today, the promise is the fear of economic insecurity and people will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations. She's just baffled I mean, and God will do for me when I cannot do for myself. You know, I'm a seeker. And I want more. And now I finally feel like, oh my goodness, I don't know if I can handle this more that I've been given. And it, and I really know I can, but because yeah. I'll have AA, but moreover, I'll have God. Yeah, and, to um, lead you. Mm-hmm. 
So that's, that's an, I don't know what else I could say about the promises, but that was an, it's exciting news to share with you guys. Yeah, it's fresh. You're my first group yeah. to share with right here. You yeah, know? The, we're the first people to hear it. She yeah. hasn't told anybody because that happened on her way over here to drive over here to do this podcast. Yeah. So that's, that's hot off the presses there. Yeah. That female jailer saw that in you. She saw you wasting your potential. She knew that you had it in you and called it out. And then now you're living it out. Yeah, and I heard her. That's the thing. I yeah. heard her. She was talking directly to you. And it may have been, you know, I think it was God <laughs> using her. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. That's true. That's true. Um, do you have a favorite passage or part of the big book or the 12 and 12 that you want to share with us or anything in the literature that you're, you want to tell us about? You know, I, I absolutely love um, step one in the 12 and 12 in the last paragraph. Uh, is absolutely my favorite. And it, you know, paraphrase talks about us being ready and and we're to do anything that will lift the merciless obsession from us that's when we know the fatal nature of our disease when we get when we get to aa you know we've learned the fatal nature but i really love in uh, i love the book of alcoholics anonymous and and i love our literature uh i mean just more than i could ever anybody who knows me and and has ever sat with me or sat by me and knows what my books look like and that i carry things to meetings that you know, I've got my books bound again because they've fallen apart. But they're in Dr. Bob's nightmare. It's Dr. Bob Smith, you know, one of the co-founders of AA. And he's telling his story. And very briefly, he says, you know, on and in the fourth edition, it's on page 180. So it's in the stories, not in the first 164. But it's the very first story, one that probably hasn't changed through all the different editions. He says he spends a great deal of time passing on what, uh, what he learned to others and because they want it and they need it badly. And he said, I do it for four reasons. Number one, a sense of duty. Number two, it is a pleasure. Number three, because in doing so, I'm paying my debt to the man who took the time to pass it on to me. And number four, because every time I do, it takes out a little more insurance for myself against a possible slip. I mean, he wrote that at four years sober. Four years sober, Dr. Bob. I mean, I think when I think about Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob, that they were like this elevated status sometimes, and I bring them back down to just human level, right? But they were just such pioneers for us. And it, it, that clarity in it, four years. And so I do this because it's a sense of duty. It's my responsibility. And it's for fun and for free, right? I mean, it's a pleasure to get, to watch someone blossom and to come alive and to see this Somebody rise from the ashes, you know, with the help of God and AA. And then because I'm paying my debt, you know, the women that have come before me and the woman that actually came back out of her parole and she made amends to me. Mm-hmm. I see her periodically around and about in the social world online and she's rising and doing her life sober. And then the woman that passed on, I inherited some of her belongings you know, that sponsor that gave me just incredible knowledge and, and love and the current sponsor I have today, I do that because they do this for me. They did for me. And I don't want to drink, Mike. I don't ever want to drink again. Me either. If I don't keep going to meetings, keep talking, um, keep working steps and digging and writing letters and reading and praying and going to meetings, if I don't keep doing all of the things, unity, service, and recovery, if I don't keep doing it all, then there's a shot that I'm, it may sound better one day to drink than, than to stay sober. And I don't want to go there. 
I agree. I know that you work with a bunch of females and I know that you've been through a lot of trauma and I've been through a lot of things in your life. It must, must be, and I'm just guessing here because I'm not a female working with females, but it must be, I would assume, very rewarding um, and fulfilling on your end to be able to meet these girls that you sponsor and have them um, first meet you, second, ask you to work with them, third, get them to trust you, and then fourth, be able to share your experience, strength, and hope with them in direct relation to their their trauma. I mean, I don't know if there's really an answer to that, but I just wanted to make that statement that I know that we all walk different lives and we all go through different stuff. And sometimes I think girls maybe have a little bit more to deal with sometimes than guys do. And it seems like that you're uniquely qualified to be able to handle situations that I certainly wouldn't be able to address, you know? You know, yeah, there are, I think most of us, you know, on all levels, right? Men or women, younger, older, we're all wounded on, somewhere in the world, not even just in our yeah. groups, right? Not yeah. just in our within our organization. I have had the opportunity and the honor, you know, the honor to speak to young women. In, and I worked between Texas and Oklahoma several years ago in, in a role that I was in and and I had been asked after going to a group to come and speak to young women who were survivors of, of domestic violence and what an honor that was to be able to take hope and recovery to them and not necessarily Alcoholics Anonymous or any other type of specific organizational mm-hmm. groups hope or mention but just the fact that we can throw our life I can throw my life preserver we can throw it over and that can help them come across you know, there's something to be said about when we stop drinking, right? We have to start cognitively restructuring. We have to start putting something in where we put the plug in that jug. We've got to start filling my God-sized void that I'd always had. I was shoving men and choices and food and booze and things and all that into this God-sized void. And if you could see me, I'm putting my hand to my chest like a circle. But we get to the other side of things with other people's help. Otherwise we're stagnant and we're standing there. If I've escaped the trauma and I just keep standing on the Island, although I've escaped it, mm-hmm. I'm going to pick another person of the same type on the Island. You know, I mean, I'm going to pick somebody else. So, um, it's, it's, a it's an honor to get to work with people. So in recovery, when we get to mix, you know, stop and drink and, and some of those old choices and how our behaviors and why we, don't want to live that way anymore. It continues to help me stay um, stronger and become healthier even more so. Because if we don't continue to strengthen our muscles, they atrophy, right? Mm -hmm. And so I don't have the the confidence, courage, and a little bit of strength today because I've sat around and talked about it. I've worked for it. I've walked against the grain, and I've brought people with me, and I have walked with women who've been through it and drug me across yeah helped you right that's why i keep doing this and not all of us here are wounded in the same ways we come from all walks of life but if there is a woman who wants to reach out or says i didn't know that i could have a career i'm telling you mike i didn't think that i was worthy of my desk job when i finally got hired and then i got so drunk that i lost that one or i ran from it Got another one, got another one. I was going nowhere. And then I got, I mean, I got sober and my lights came on. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know what? I got a couple of clues. <laughs> I want this. And of course, you know, I'll, very quickly, I'll tell you, when I first went back to school in 2011, I didn't think that I could. I didn't think they would accept me. I didn't think I could. I didn't know how to do the paperwork. I didn't think I was worthy of college. They weren't going to let me in. I mean, I was so unique in a negative, poor, pitiful me, like pride in reverse, right? Like super I was so scared. super like, they're not going to let me in. Yeah. Well, I got into my math class and I had to take remedial math. Mm-hmm. Well, that's off-putting. I'm not, <laughs> you need to just let me in, right? Well, anyway, I called my sponsor and I'm like, well, I think whenever I start my master's degree, that I'm gonna, and she said, you just started remedial math in your first <laughs> semester of your four-year degree. Like, like let's step back, you know, it's so funny. And so then all this time later, I, I'm, you know, these blessings have come to pass to where I, I will tell you that if there are women out there who are listening who don't think that they have the strength or the courage or they don't think they've got it in them, and they've recovered from or moving through the steps of transitioning through some trauma. My role previous to the one I'm in now and the one that I'm being elevated from into an even greater opportunity, I was gifted with the opportunity to manage a team of men, 27 men who worked remotely around the nation. And I was the only woman in the field that they had in a leadership role. I was so blessed to have that role. But to treat those men with respect and dignity and for them to look to me to lead the team shows me full circle. God is always in control. God is everything else. He's nothing. Coming from this broken woman who had had at the hands of a number of poor choices in men to now leading them mm-hmm. and treating them with such respect. Yeah. And not trying to date any of her married. No, no it's not. And I, like I said earlier, like I haven't been married or arrested, like right. And I've right. and being single in sobriety is not the old. Easy. You would have went crazy if you had twenty seven dudes working for you. No, you right. Know, you take one of those, two of those. No, that or either like being a man hater, right, and yeah. treating them poorly because of someone else's mistakes. Yeah. So just like the total paradox mm-hmm. and. Growth. growth and then not being this power hungry individual in in leadership yeah. i am humbled and i stay at a level where i'm you know just as long as i can be of service to god and to others every single day and whatever that looks like i let god decide i just show up that's fantastic i think one of the most interesting things that you've talked about today and i've never heard anybody say this is is how you in the morning when you're doing your your um step 11 uh 10 11 praying and meditating, and when you're talking about like writing the letters to god and then stepping away for five minutes and then coming back and writing a response to you from god i've never heard anything like that ever i'm going to tell you something if you got something on your heart or something yeah. on your mind and something that you've wadded up, put on a tiniest piece of paper as big as your fingernail and you've put it in your God box as mm-hmm. not to give it that much energy mm-hmm. and you still cannot figure out, I am restless, I'm irritable, I'm discontent, I don't know why I have anxiety, I don't know why I'm angry. Mm-hmm. I was treating this individual very poorly um, that I know in, in a working, in my working world and I don't, I couldn't understand why. Mm-hmm. I talked to my sponsor about it. She's like, you need to write about this. And let me tell you something. I wrote down, why am I acting this way towards this woman? Why is it X, Y, Z? Why these feelings? And I don't mean, oh, why me? Why me? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm asking specifics, qu- you know, questions. Mm-hmm. I read something spiritual, whatever it was. 
whether it's a magnet on your fridge, uh, something out of a book, or I mean, I make, I go through this process. And you're exactly right. I walked away. And when I came back, what I wrote to myself, and I said this, I said, your heart is so much kinder than the actions that you're showing. Treat her with respect. She's wounded too. <laughs> like the things I wrote back were like. That would just defuse so much of the drama in your own head. You know what? <laughs> and you're like, I need to just calm down a little bit. I mean, like I wrote back to myself with almost this. It's like one side of my brain has manufactured this BS <laughs> and the other side of my brain has bought it <laughs> and then trying to sell it, you know? So when I write this letter to me, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I'm like, or, I'm sorry to God. Yeah. I, I'm like, dear God. Mm-hmm. And then I walk away. I don't come back to try to impress myself no. and write it all classy back. Like <laughs> it's all something fantastic I can put in a book. I'm just trying to, yeah. You know, and I'm, I've given it to God. I'm like, God, I'm, I'm asking you these questions. I'm going to tell you something. My handwriting changes. Oh, really? I, I underline <laughs> and bold. I encourage anybody to write mm-hmm. letters to God. Okay, and then let him write it back to you. I've never tried it or even heard of anybody doing that. Do it. That's, I don't do it every day. I'm doing yeah. this. I'm working on this. I think I do it every day. I mean, I feel uh, like I'd be on the AA beam in a new <laughs> AA leotard, you know, throwing glitter in the air. We'll get you a cape. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just like, I could do this for a living. But no, I'm just, uh, it's, it's an amazing tool i've never heard of it i'm I'm gonna try that i'll talk to my wife about that and tell her it's my new tool i'm gonna try this andy told me about this so i want to ask you a question but i'm gonna ask you a question and then i'm gonna read something and you can answer so i'll give you time to get your head together i'm gonna ask you do you have any parting thoughts for our audience and so you start working on that in your head and you can go any direction you want to go to land the plane on that deal i'm gonna read something that almost all of y'all have never heard i would assume it's something called the rewards this is not conference approved or aa approved or aa related this is just something that somebody's come up with and it's called the rewards and there's 12 of them and i'd like to read them to you and then we're going to slide back over to andy and ask her uh, if she has any parting thoughts for the audience here they are the rewards one this is what you get from working the program and getting sober one hope instead of desperation two faith instead of despair three courage instead of fear four peace of mind instead of confusion five self-respect instead of self-contempt six self-confidence instead of helplessness number seven the respect of others instead of their pity and contempt eight a clean conscience instead of a sense of guilt nine real friends instead of loneliness ten a clean pattern of living instead of a hopeless existence eleven the love and understanding of our families instead of their doubts and fears. 12. The freedom of a happy life instead of the bondage of an alcoholic obsession. And that's something referred to as rewards, and it's not commonly spoken about or really even read very often. So I thought I wanted to read that to y'all. So let's slide back over to Andy. Do you have any uh, parting thoughts for our audience? Sure. I, uh, I have so many places dog-eared in the book you know and and I'm sitting across from Mike right now and he can see my book and and, you know I've just basically it's just a handbook for life and there's so many things I could say but what I'll tell you is there's a story in the back and the author talks about what it was like what happened and what it's like now and 
And this one little piece right here I'm going to read to you just makes such sense to me. I've already told you about some of the miracles that have happened. However, there's more. I want you to know how I feel inside. I'm no longer spiritually bankrupt. It's as if a magic source in my life has provided me with all I need. When I first came to AA, I didn't know who I was. My sponsor said, great, if you don't know who you are, you can become whoever God wants you to be. Today, I'm doing things I never dreamed possible. More importantly, it's the peace and serenity I feel inside that keeps me coming back. I've been through some hard times in and out of sobriety, but before AA, it didn't matter how good things got, I always had a feeling something was going to go wrong. It's as if everything is going to be all right, no matter how bad things get. So I will tell you guys that no matter what has come to pass in this very short amount of time I've been sober since March uh, 13th, 2009, it seems like an eternity sometimes, and then sometimes it seems like no time at all. There have been times that it, the thought to drink has passed my mind, yes. I have thought about going out or being single and going for social and whatever. And in spite of it all, when things I don't feel good or I've been sick or or someone has passed. I have buried all of my pets that I brought into the into the program, my dogs that I slept with when That's I hard. didn't have a place to live, my cat that I loved, you know, and and he died. He actually drank with me. I used to joke that he needed meetings, you know, because um, I, I had him until a few years ago. You know, people have died. Both of my brothers have passed. My brother's wife um, murdered him. She was one of us, and she murdered him. And... Um, my other brother passed because he didn't take care of himself and drank and used, you know. And at the end of the day, and his health declined over time, but at the end of the day, none of these things are worth drinking because I have chosen not to give any body or anything the power to make me drink. And sometimes it's just in spite of not wanting to come in and pick up a chip in front of y'all. Sometimes it's ego and pride. That's the very honest truth. But at the end of the day, I have so much hope. I am fueled by hope because I want more. I am a seeker. And if it is this good, this early on, even in spite of how bad it's been sometimes, God has given me more than I ever imagined could happen. And to sit in front of you today and to tell you that my boss called me and said, congratulations, you're promoted to the vice president of your department. And I'm like, his He's going to find out any day who I really am. And the reality is today, I hope he does because my heart is so big and so full and my service to God and to others means him sometimes and means my employees and it means all of you and anybody that I come and, you know, the guy at the store or whatever's happening and wherever I go. Today, I choose to feed the light wolf and not the dark wolf on my shoulder. AA has taught me so many things in my recovery and my outside help that no matter what the jig isn't up it isn't going to be up until I give it up and then that's when life starts to change and had I not come into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and had I not started to change my life I would have been dead a long time ago but I don't know what works if it's meetings completely reading you know, spirituality, 100%, working with my sponsor, working with other women, um, prayer and meditation. I don't know what it is, so I don't want to give any of it up and risk missing another day of this. So in the event they do find out who I really am, all the better.
because God is so good, and it's my life and my sobriety today are all because of what God and AA have given me. So that's, I would say the takeaway would be no matter what, don't give up, keep coming, and just for today, you don't have to drink, just for today, and your life will change. Wow. Thank what you. a beautiful, beautiful story of transformation. I want to thank you so much for joining us here on Sober Shares today. This has been a very moving experience, and I appreciate your story. I've learned so much more about you. I've known you for a few years, but not on this level. You took it to another level today. That was so, so good. I'm going to read something from uh, our literature. It's page 164, and then uh, we'll see you all in the next episode. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. 